Hello and welcome to Where the Monsters Are. I'm Louise. And I'm Sarah. Tonight's episode is about a mass shooting that took place in Texas in 1966. On the 1st of August 1966, former Marine Charles Whitman took various shotguns and other weapons to the campus of the Texas University and went on a 96-minute rampage, randomly shooting any passers-by. At the time of the attack, it was the deadliest mass shooting by a lone gunman in US history, being surpassed 18 years later by the San Isidro McDonald's massacre. The episode does contain details of people being shot and killed, so if you think you're going to be affected by anything in here, you might want to listen to one of our other episodes instead. Before I get into the episode, if you're liking the podcast, please subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. And if you have a few minutes, please give us a review. We'd love to hear from you. So if you have any comments or suggestions, please follow us on Instagram or Twitter at Where the Monsters Are podcast. So on with the show. Charles Joseph Whitman was born in Lake Worth, Florida on the 24th of June 1941. His parents were Margaret and Charles Adolphus Whitman Jr. and he was the eldest of three sons. His father was a harsh disciplinarian and was physically and emotionally abusive to both his wife and sons. Growing up, Whitman was a polite child, even-tempered, rarely losing his temper. He was an intelligent child. A test when he was six years old showed he had an IQ of 139, which meant he was well above average intelligence. When he did well at school, everything was great. But if there were any perceived failures, these were met with harsh physical discipline from his father. He and his brothers were raised in the Roman Catholic faith like his mother and they were altar boys at the Sacred Heart Roman Catholic Church. He regularly went hunting with his father and brothers and he eventually became an excellent marksman. Whitman was a moderately popular student at school and went to Palm Beach from 1955. By the end of that year he'd saved enough money from his newspaper route job to buy a Harley Davidson motorbike which he used on his paper route. Without first telling his father, he enlisted in the US Marine Corps after graduating from school in June 1959. He decided to join the Marines following an incident the month before where his father had beaten him and thrown him into the family swimming pool because he'd come home one night drunk. He left home on the 6th of July and began an 18-month tour of duty with the Marines at Guantanamo Bay. His father was still unaware that he had enlisted, but when he found out, he tried unsuccessfully to have his son's enlistment cancelled. Whitman won a Marine Corps Expeditionary Medal during his enlistment. He was excellent at shooting rapidly over long distances, as well as at moving targets. After he'd finished his first tour, he applied for a US Navy and Marine Corps scholarship so that he could complete college and become a commissioned officer. He earned outstanding marks on his exams and his enrolment was approved. He completed his schooling at a prep school in Maryland, excelling in maths and physics before he was approved for a transfer to the University of Texas at Austin to study mechanical engineering. To begin with, he wasn't the best student. Shortly after he started at the university, he and two friends were caught poaching a deer and he was fined $100 as a punishment. While at university, he earned a reputation as a practical joker, but was also known to make quite morbid comments. In 1962, while browsing at a bookstore on campus, he said to a friend that a person could hold off an army from the top of the tower before they got him. Very chilling considering what would happen from that tower four years later. Mm. Whitman met Kathleen Francis Leisner in February 1962 and she became his first serious girlfriend. They dated for five months and announced their engagement on 19th of July. 
They married in Needville, Texas in August 1962, having chosen the anniversary of his parents for the date of their own wedding. Although Whitman's grades improved during his second and third semester, it was too little too late and his scholarship was revoked and he was ordered back to active duty, which would take place at Camp Lejeune, I think that's how you pronounce it, in North Carolina for the remainder of his five-year enlistment. Whitman was apparently resentful at having his scholarship revoked, but continued to maintain a reputation as an excellent Marine. He began to gamble quite heavily, and in November 1963, he was court-martialed for gambling and possession of a personal firearm, and for threatening a fellow Marine over a $30 loan, for which he demanded $15 interest. He was sentenced to 30 days confinement and 90 days hard labour. He was also demoted from Lance Corporal to Private. Whitman started to write a journal while waiting for his court-martial, writing about interactions with his wife and other family members, his daily life on base and his upcoming court-martial. He began to develop a resentment of the Marine Corps, criticising them for inefficiencies. In December 1964, he was honourably discharged from the Marines and returned to the University of Texas at Austin, enrolling in the Architectural Engineering Programme. He worked at several jobs while at university as a bill collector, a bank teller, and he also had a temporary job as a traffic surveyor for the Texas Highway Department. He also spent time volunteering as a scout leader while his wife worked as a teacher at Lanier High School. In an interview with KTBC News after the shootings, Whitman's career as a scout leader was discussed and Whitman was described as being loved by all of the people he worked with there. Whitman told friends that he had on two occasions hit his wife, for which he despised himself because he was afraid that he was like his father. In his journal, he said that he wanted to be a good husband and not abusive as his father was. In May 1966, his mother told him that she was going to divorce her husband due to the domestic violence that she was still suffering. Whitman drove to Florida and helped her to move to Austin so she could be close to him and away from his father. He had a policeman present when he went to pick her up because he was afraid that his father would become violent. His youngest brother John also left Florida and moved to Austin to take care of their mother. Their other brother Patrick, who was the middle brother, stayed in Florida where he worked for their father. When she was settled in Austin, his mother began to work in a cafeteria and moved into her own apartments, but she did stay in close contact with Whitman. His father kept in touch with her and Whitman by making long-distance phone calls and he even tried to get his wife to return to him, asking Whitman to convince her to go back to him. Due to stress at what was happening with his parents, Whitman began to abuse amphetamines and had severe headaches. I'm now going to go over the lead-up to the shootings. Prior to the shootings, obviously having decided on what he was going to do, Whitman bought a pair of binoculars and a knife from a local hardware store. He picked his wife up from her summer job as a telephone operator and then met his mother for lunch at a cafeteria close to the university campus. At approximately 4pm on the day before the shootings, Whitman and his wife Kathy visited their friends John and Fran Morgan at their apartments, leaving at almost 6pm so Kathy could get to her job for her 6-10pm shift. While Kathy was at work, Whitman began typing his suicide note a part of which went, I do not quite understand what it is that compels me to type this letter. Perhaps it is to leave some vague reason for the actions I have recently performed. I do not really understand myself these days. I am supposed to be an average, reasonable and intelligent young man. However, lately, I cannot recall when it started. I have been a victim of many unusual and irrational thoughts. These thoughts constantly recur and it requires a tremendous mental effort to concentrate on useful and progressive tasks. 
In his note, he requested an autopsy be performed on his remains to see if there had been any physical reasons for his actions and for his increasingly bad headaches. He also added that he'd decided to kill both his mother and his wife. He said that his mother had never enjoyed life as she was entitled to and that his wife had been as fine a wife to me as any man could ever hope to have. He went on to say that he didn't want either woman to suffer and to save them the embarrassment of his actions. He didn't specifically mention planning the attack on the university. On the morning of the 1st of August, Whitman went to her apartment and murdered his mother. After killing her, he placed her body on her bed and covered it with sheets. It isn't clear exactly what happened, but police believe that he rendered her unconscious before stabbing her in the heart. He left a handwritten note beside her body, part of which read, To whom it may concern, I have just taken my mum's life. I'm very upset over having done it. However, I feel that if there is a heaven, she's definitely there now. I am truly sorry. Let there be no doubt in your mind that I love this woman with all my heart. Whitman then returned to his home and while his wife slept, he killed her by stabbing her three times in the heart. He covered her body with sheets and then resumed the typewritten note that he had begun the previous evening. I imagine it appears that I brutally killed both of my loved ones. I was only trying to do a quick, thorough job. If my life insurance policy is valid, please pay off my debts. Donate the rest anonymously to a mental health foundation. Maybe research can prevent further tragedies of this type. Give our dog to my in-laws. Tell them Cathy loved Scotia very much. If you can find in yourselves to grant my last wish, cremate me after the autopsy. At almost 6am on the 1st of August, Whitman called his wife's boss and told him that Cathy was ill and wouldn't be going to work that day. He later also called his mother's work and told them something similar. I'm now going to go over exactly what happened when Whitman reached the university. He made his way to the University of Texas campus and lied to a security guard saying that he was a research assistant there to deliver equipment. The security guard led him through and wheeling his equipment with him, he went into the main building. When he got there, he found that the lift wasn't working and he spoke to an employee who helpfully activated it for him. He exited the lift on the 27th floor and wheeled his weapons up a flight of stairs to a hallway, heading for a flight of stairs that led to the observation deck. 51-year-old receptionist Edna Townsley was manning the desk when Whitman arrived at the observation deck. Upon seeing Edna and not wanting anyone to stop him, Whitman knocked her to the ground and hit her on the head with the butt of his rifle, splitting her skull and then hit her again above her left eye before he hid her behind a couch. The day before, teenager Cheryl Botts from Rockdale had been visiting her grandmother in Austin. She struck up a conversation at the Greyhound bus station with Don Walden, a University of Texas student who was working at the station and they agreed to meet the next day so he could show her around the campus on his motorcycle. They went up to the observation deck where Don spent some time showing Cheryl the sights below. From there they enjoyed the view on all four sides allowing them to see the whole city below. Cheryl had grown up in a small town so she was impressed at how big everything was. They spent almost half an hour up on the deck before heading back inside. Cheryl absently noted that the reception desk was unmanned. Edna had been manning the desk when they first went up to the observation deck but didn't really think anything of it as she and Don were still talking. It was as they carried on that they saw the blonde Whitman stand up from his place behind the couch where he had, unknown to them, hidden Edna's body. He was carrying two guns in his hands and they were naive enough to think that he was up there to shoot pigeons. Cheryl smiled at Whitman and said hello to him, to which he replied hi. This exchange took no more than 15 seconds and then Cheryl and Don walked to the stairwell, heading to the next floor down to take the lift to the ground floor. 
Whitman, glad that they were out of the way, pushed a desk across the entrance to the stairwell to prevent anyone else coming up onto the observation deck. He was about to go out onto the deck itself to start carrying out his plan when MJ Gabor from Texarkana, his wife Mary Frances and their sons Mike, an Air Force Academy cadet stationed in Colorado Springs, Colorado, and 16-year-old Mark were coming up the stairs from the 27th floor. They were in Austin visiting MJ's sister and brother-in-law Marguerite and William Lamport. Seeing Mike and Mark trying to squeeze past the desk that he'd placed at the entrance, Whitman came forward with his shotgun and shot both of them. He hit Mike in the legs, injuring him. His injuries would mean that he would be unable to complete his Air Force training and would have to drop out. Unfortunately, Mark was hit in the head and died instantly. Whitman shot down the stairwell, killing Marguerite and wounding Mary Frances. Mary Frances was paralysed from the neck down, from which she never recovered. Her husband MJ and brother-in-law William, who were behind the women, were not hit. Mike regained consciousness when his father MJ tried to pull him down the blood-filled hallway. Mike told him to go for help, which he did, along with his brother-in-law William. Mike then tried to escape, but realised that he couldn't move due to being unable to move his left leg, which had been injured when he was shot. It was then that he recognised that his mother was still alive, so he stayed to try to keep her that way. Thinking that he must have either killed or caused them to run away, Whitman shot the unconscious receptionist Edna Townsley in the head before exiting the area onto the observation deck. Whitman was now where he knew he had the best vantage point for what he intended. He unpacked his weapons and took a spot on the tower, 231 feet above the ground. It was 11.48am and in his sights were his first victims, Claire Wilson, an 18-year-old and 8-month pregnant student, who at the time was leaving the student union with her boyfriend, 18-year-old Thomas Ekman. They'd realised while inside having a coffee that they would need to put some more money in the parking meter, so were walking across the South Moor when Claire and Tom were hit by the first of the many bullets that Whitman would be shooting over the next 96 minutes. Thomas wasn't the father of her unborn child, but they'd been dating for a few months. They met when Claire was already five months pregnant, which at the time was scandalous since Claire was a middle-class girl from Dallas. Tom was new to Austin when they met and they'd been inseparable ever since. Claire was the first to be shot by Whitman. The bullet hit Claire in the abdomen and as she fell to the floor, she felt like she'd stood on a live wire as though she'd been electrocuted. Tom said something to her before he too was hit in the chest. He fell to the ground beside Claire and didn't speak again. It was then that Claire knew that he was dead. She was losing copious amounts of blood. Before the shooting, her baby had been very active and after she felt nothing and knew immediately that she had lost her baby. A passerby, Rita Starpattern, having witnessed what had happened, lay next to Claire for the next hour as she comforted her and tried to stop her from falling unconscious, despite Claire telling her to get to safety. It was at this point that James Love, John Artley Fox and several others came out of their own places of safety to retrieve Tom's body and to carry Claire to safety. Claire spent the next three months in hospital as she tried to recover from the shooting, also having to learn how to walk again as she tried to come to terms with the loss of her baby and her boyfriend. Robert Hamilton Boyer, a 33-year-old mathematician who worked at the university as a professor, was struck in the lower back and killed as he walked across the campus on his lunch break. Professor Boyer had been planning a move to Liverpool in England to take on a teaching job where his pregnant wife and two children were already living. He was posthumously responsible for a mathematical paper released in 1967 relating to the measurements of metrics of black holes. Devro Maitland Huffman, an assistant professor in the management department, was on campus walking to the faculty dining room in the student union. 
He'd heard some of the previous shots but hadn't recognised them for what they were because of the construction work that was going on across the campus. He saw three people lying on the South Mall, Claire, Tom and Rita, and wondered what was going on but thought absently that it was a drama class or a sociology experiment as there had been several instances of both recently. Whitman shot at him and as luck would have it, Huffman turned at the time of the shot and rather than being struck in the chest, he was instead hitting his right arm. The shot destroyed about three inches of bone and caused the bone to go through his arm and into his chest. He heard someone shouting that there was someone in the tower with a rifle so he dropped to the ground and played dead. He lay on the ground for close to an hour before Charlotte Darashore, a secretary, ran across to try to help both Huffman and Boye. She realised that she was under fire and spent the next hour and a half crouched behind the concrete base of a flagpole. She was one of the few people who ventured onto the mall that day and thankfully survived the siege unharmed. David Matson, Roland Elk and Tom Herman were all volunteers in the Peace Corps and were walking down the drag to go to Sheffdall's jewellers to fix David's watch. They'd been having a water fight at their dorm the previous night and it had caused water to get under the crystal. He was holding his hand up to show his friends his watch when he was struck by one of Whitman's bullets, blowing away part of his wrist. He'd had his hand up at high level, so it appears that Whitman had been aiming for his head and his wrist had stopped the bullet from killing him. Roland was struck in the arm by shrapnel, then in the leg by a bullet when he left cover to try to get David to safety. Homer Kelly, the 64-year-old shop manager at Sheffdall's, who had been standing outside his shop, saw them get injured and was himself shot in the leg while trying to get the young friends into the safety of his shop. They stayed locked in the back of the shop until a policeman hammered on the back door from outside, calling to them, telling them that an ambulance was there and that they should make a run for it. They got to the ambulance and found that the driver had been shot and was laid out in the back. I will be mentioning this driver a bit more later. They got inside with him and the policeman came back and drove them to the hospital using alleys and the surrounding buildings for cover. Thomas Aquinas Ashton was a 22-year-old political sciences graduate from the University of Southern California. Thomas had been planning to study law before being inspired by the assassination of JFK to serve his country in other ways so he'd join the Peace Corps instead of law school. He was involved in many organisations such as the civil rights organisation NAACP. He was at the University of Texas for the summer, studying Persian, having been assigned by the Peace Corps to go to Iran as an English instructor. Indeed, he was scheduled to leave Austin for Iran on the 14th of September that year. Thomas left his Persian language class just after 11.50am to meet up with David Matson, Roland Elk and Tom Herman at the Student Union for a volunteer luncheon, unaware that they were under attack from the sniper in the tower. He headed across the paved terrace above the university's computation centre and witnessed the shooting of some of Whitman's victims. Before he had a chance to find cover, he was himself shot in the chest. He was later pronounced dead at Brackenridge Hospital. The Peace Corps arranged to fly his body home to Redlands, California to his parents and six younger brothers and sisters and was later buried at Hillside Memorial Park in San Bernardino County. Friends Nancy Harvey and Ellen Evgenides were on their way to lunch, like many others of Charles Whitman's victims. Nancy, who like Claire Wilson was also pregnant, was an education major and worked part-time on the second floor of the tower. She'd just stepped out of the tower when they heard shots. After the shots had ended, they asked the security guard if it was safe for them to go outside and he told them it was. They made their way to the West Moor, which was about 100 yards away from the tower, when Nancy was shot in the hip and the bullet ricocheted and hit Ellen in the left leg and thigh. They managed to make their way to safety between the academic centre and the student union. 17-year-old Alec Hernandez was riding his bicycle delivering newspapers near the main entrance of the West Mall when he was shot through the leg, injuring his right femur. 
His job delivering newspapers was supposed to have finished the day before, but he was asked by the company he worked for to work one more day, which he did. Alan Crum, a co-op manager who will become important later in the story, told some students how to stop the bleeding, potentially helping to save the 17-year-old's life. On Guadalupe and 23rd Street was Lania High School student Karen Griffith. Lania, if you remember, is the same school that Kathy Whitman taught biology. Whitman shifted his sights from the school and moved around to the side of the tower where he would be able to view Guadalupe and unfortunately this was where he found Karen in his crosshairs. Karen was hit by Whitman's bullet in the shoulder and chest. The bullet pierced her right lung and she died in Brackenridge Hospital from her injuries seven days later. 24-year-old Tom Carr was on the pavement on the west side of Guadalupe in front of Snyder Chenard's dress shop. Tom was born in Spur, Texas on the 29th of July 1942 and grew up in Fort Worth. He'd been stationed in Taiwan between 1963 and 1965 and had the dream to work for the US State Department so had decided to earn some extra credits by going to summer school at the University of Texas. Tom was in a good mood because he'd just passed a Spanish test and was heading to his dorm in Bats Hall. It was as he was walking along that he saw Karen Griffith get hit by one of Whitman's bullets right in front of him. It was his instinct to try to help her so he rushed over to her to see if there was anything he could do and was shot himself as he tried to give her aid. He was hit in the left side of the spine which meant he was unable to move and laid on the ground for about an hour before being taken to Brackenridge Hospital. He sadly died on the operating table at 1.10pm and was later buried back home in Spur, Texas. Similarly to Tom Carr, David Gumby was enrolled at UT Summer School to gain credits for his degree in electrical engineering. He'd spent most of that morning at the library studying. He left the library and then forgot that he'd forgotten to pick up a specific book that he needed. It was as he was walking beneath the UT Tower, where Whitman had stationed himself to make his way back to the library to collect his book, that he was suddenly hit by Whitman. The bullet went through his upper arm and entered his abdominal cavity, badly severing his small intestine. He lay injured on the extremely hot pavement for almost an hour, still in sight of Whitman, sometimes playing dead and waving at others to stay away from the range of Whitman's bullets. Austin Police Department officers, along with emergency medical personnel, were using armoured trucks to look for survivors, along with Malvin Hess, owner of the Austin Armoured Company, which had provided the trucks for the authorities' use. It was a little after 12.30 when David was rescued, along with Adrian Littlefield, who you'll hear about shortly, and taken to the Brackenridge Hospital. It was while David was having surgery to repair his small intestine, the doctors discovered that he only had one functioning kidney, and that the one that was working had been severely damaged in the shooting. The doctors saved David's life that day, but he was to struggle for the rest of his life with kidney disease and significant pain. He returned to school in 1968 and finished his degree. He moved with his wife and two children to Fort Worth and worked in the avionics department at General Dynamics until 1991. In 2001, tired of living with the pain and three times a week dialysis he was undergoing, David announced that he was stopping dialysis and died a week later at Harris Methodist Hospital in Fort Worth. As his condition had been a direct result of the Whitman shooting, and even though it happened many years later, his death in 2001 was officially recorded as a homicide. Now going to go back a bit to Adrian Littlefield, who I just mentioned. Adrian was 19 years old and was married to Brenda, who was 18. On the 1st of August, the day of the shootings, they'd only been married for nine days and were walking out of the main building at the university. Brenda had just picked up a paycheck and they were walking out onto the South Moor when Brenda was suddenly shot in the hip. As Adrian leaned over her to try to help, he too was shot in the back. Adrian's father, who had been waiting for them, ran over to his son and daughter-in-law to help. 
They were taken to the hospital in the same armoured truck as David Gumby. Adrian's left side was paralysed and doctors said that he would never walk again but he defied these predictions because 20 months later he was walking. Before the shooting began, Claudia Rutt was chatting with friends on the drag. She and her boyfriend Paul Sontag were on their way to the university co-op to look at some records. Claudia had always wanted to be a dancer and at the age of 18 had just graduated from Stephen F. Austin High School and was about to leave her freshman year at Texas Christian University. She was a native of Austin and a member of her youth group at Temple Beth Israel. Paul was also 18 and a recent graduate at the same school as his girlfriend and was planning to attend Colorado University in the autumn. That summer, Paul was in his third year as a lifeguard at Reed Paul. The couple had run into another friend, Carla Sue Wheeler, when the bullets started falling. They took shelter behind a construction barrier, but it was too late. Paul was shot and died instantly. Claudia tried to reach for him and Carla held her back, but they too were immediately shot. Carla was hit in the hand, injuring her left ring, middle and index fingers, and Claudia was hit in the chest. Claudia would sadly die on the operating table because her injuries had caused severe internal bleeding. This would cause a Jewish community of which she was a member to call her death part of a Texas Holocaust and her rabbi would tell reporters that she was loved by everybody. Paul's grandfather, also named Paul Bolton, was a KTBC news director and learned of his grandson's death when a roll call of the victims was read aloud during an emergency broadcast that day. Bob Higley was a junior at the time of the shooting and is now the managing director of an investment firm in Houston. He was interviewed on the 40th anniversary of the shootings along with others who were there at the time. He spoke about he and a friend being there on the day and said, Cliff Drummond and I wanted to see if there was anything we could do to help. We took an interior stairwell down to the bottom floor of the Texas Union and exited on the drag. A lot of kids were standing there hugging that west wall pretty good. Across the street was a student sitting against a parking meter. Obviously wounded, his head slumped over. We later learned his name was Paul Sontag. Nobody was going over to help him. Drummond said something to the effect of let's go get him. We looked each other in the eye and had a Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid kind of moment. I said, are you going first or am I? They both went out and made their way across the street. They were shot at but Whitman thankfully missed. They lay down behind a car for cover before working their way on their bellies over to Sontag. They felt for a pulse but couldn't find one and it was then that they saw that he was dead due to the wounds he'd sustained. Roy Dal Schmidt was an electrician working for the city of Austin and that day he was working with a colleague named Solon McCown. They had received a service call to go to a job and after finishing their lunch they were off. As they got closer they realised that there was more traffic than was usual. They weren't able to turn onto Guadalupe but at the time weren't aware of why. They instead headed north toward the tower and spotted another city service van, a mobile news truck and a Chevrolet blocking the street. Thinking there'd been a fire, Roy and Solon left their van to see if they could help. They approached the other city worker, a man named Don Carlson, who told them to take cover because there was a sniper. It was then that they realised it wasn't a fire and spent the next few minutes crouched behind the Chevrolet for cover. Roy had been a city employee for over 10 years and was 29 years old. He was a big man, 6 feet 1 and 165 pounds, and it's believed that because crouching behind the car made him uncomfortable, he stood up thinking at over 500 yards away from the tower, they were out of range of Whitman's shots. This wasn't to be the case because Whitman let out a shot from the observation deck, which went over the entire length of the South Mall, over the Littlefield Fountain, over the news crew's mobile van, over the hood of the Chevrolet and into Roy's stomach. 
Solon McCown raced to his truck to get a first aid kit to help his fallen colleague, but Roy was pronounced dead on arrival at Brackenridge Hospital less than 10 minutes later. Billy Speed was an Austin police officer born in San Antonio. While his father had been serving in the Pacific in World War II, he and his two older brothers were raised by their mother and grandmother. On the weekends, Billy and his brothers would go rock hunting and cave exploring through Texas Hill Country. During high school, each year they would fix up a car and go down to Mexico for a few weeks, where they would camp and explore the silver and opal mines in the mountains. He later became interested in photography, and he carried this hobby with him when he joined the army, having immediately enlisted after graduation. He joined the 82nd Airborne when he was assigned to Company A, 2nd Battalion, 505th Regiment. In October 1962, he served in South Florida during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Billy left the army to raise a family, marrying Jeannie Holmes in 1963. Their daughter Rebecca Lynn was born a year and a half later. The young family settled in Austin to be closer to his wife's family and he took on a job with the Austin PD. At the time of the shootings, he'd been with them for only 13 months and had been planning to resign his position so he could go to college. Billy was on a routine traffic stop at the corner of 21st Street and Guadalupe when he was informed of shots being fired from the tower. As a result of his close proximity to the shootings, he was one of the first police officers to arrive at the scene. He made his way toward the tower and headed up the north steps that led to the main tower mall. He positioned himself next to the former site of the Jefferson Davis statue beside a few civilians and fellow officer Jerry Culp. He was shot between two decorative balusters that separated the upper and lower terraces of the South Moor and was taken to Breckenridge Hospital where he was pronounced dead on arrival. Harry Walchuk was a 38-year-old doctoral student doing research at the library at the university. He was married to Marilyn and they had six children. He'd received a bachelor's degree from the university back in 1954 and had returned in 1966 to complete a PhD. He'd been in the library preparing to go for his usual 7pm class. Around 12 o'clock he left the library to grab some lunch and headed out along Guadalupe. After stopping at a magazine stand, he walked out onto the pavement unaware of what was happening and straight into plain sight of Whitman. As he started to walk a bit south, a Navy veteran was fatally shot in the chest, collapsing. The victim furthest away from Whitman was Billy Snowden. He and his barber, who were at A&E Barbershop, wrongly believed that they were out of range of the shots. Billy was shot and wounded in the shoulder as he stood in the doorway of the shop where he was getting a haircut. A bit of an aside about Billy, at the time he was the head basketball coach at the Texas School for the Deaf and under his guidance they went on to become the national champions in 1968 and 1969. To the south of the northwest corner of 24th and Guadalupe, a group of about eight people were standing around trying to see what was going on. It was unsurprising the Whitman zeroed in on them. One of the group was Lana Phillips, a 21-year-old senior majoring in music. She'd been inside Rayanne's dress shop on the drag, where she was employed, but had walked outside after the shooting had started. At that point she wasn't scared, but that quickly changed when she was shot. Whitman directed a rapid fire of gunshots, it's believed with a 30 calibre automatic, into the group and Lana was hit in the back of her shoulder. Her sister, who'd been watching from the student union, waited for a break in the shooting to run across the drag to help Lana into an ambulance. Sandra Wilson, a 21-year-old student who'd been standing nearby, was seriously wounded when she herself was shot in the chest. Others in the group were an engaged couple, Abdul Kashab and Janet Paulos. Abdul was a 25-year-old foreign exchange student from Iraq and was about to be married shortly to Janet, who was a native from Garland, Texas. 
She was majoring in English and he was on a scholarship arranged by the Iraqi government. As Whitman shot at the group, Janet was shot in the chest, the bullet fracturing four of her ribs. Before he could do anything to help, Abdul was shot in the right elbow and hip. When Abdul and Janet married on the 27th of August that same year, Abdul's arm was still in a sling. Native Bolivian Oscar Roy Vela, 21, and his girlfriend, Irma Garcia, also 21, from Harlingen, were walking south of Hog Auditorium, heading north to the biology lab when they were hit by Whitman's bullets. Irma was the first to be shot, being hit in the left shoulder. As Oscar went to help her, he too was shot, the bullet entering his left shoulder blade, exiting under and through his left arm. Two students, Jack Stevens and Jack Pennington, were nearby and dashed to grab the couple by the feet and drag them to safety. The US Embassy bought his mother a ticket from Bolivia so that she could come to his side to help with his recovery. Oscar was interviewed a year later about the shooting and he said, I want to remember the kindness of many persons who in one way or another did help me during the critical time. I shall always remember with affection all that the wonderful American people did. Irma went on to earn a master's degree in educational psychology and in 2013 she told a reporter that she had struggled with post-traumatic stress disorder following the shooting. Partly because of this and partly learning afterwards that Whitman had been a veteran dealing with his own mental health issues, she said that she wished there was more care available for veterans with PTSD. 26-year-old carpenter Avelino Esparza was working nearby at the construction site of a new post office. As he was walking back to work, he was injured when Whitman fired a shot into his left arm near the shoulder. The round shattered the bone of his upper arm. His brother and uncle risked their lives to drag him to safety and Avelino was later admitted to Brackenridge in serious condition, though he did later recover. Robert Hurd was a former Marine and a reporter for the Associated Press. He and another reporter, Ernie Stromberger, who worked at the Dallas Times-Herald, drove to the campus and parked behind two highway patrolmen who were loading up their shotguns. Assuming that the officers were on their way to the tower, he and Ernie followed behind. Ernie stayed behind when they ran across 24th Street but Robert continued on and just a few seconds later was hit. He said later that he'd forgotten his marine training and failed to zigzag. He fell in the street and tried to get up. Some students in the nearby Biological Sciences building called out to him to stay down. He never knew whether it was these students or some others but some students left the cover of safety and obviously knowing that they could also be shot at any time dragged him under the boot of a Studebaker. He also said that Ernie Stromberger made a call to his newspaper and told them to tell the AP that Robert had been shot and they no longer had anyone reporting on the shootings. The AP sent a reporter named Garth Jones to see Robert when he was in Brackenridge Hospital Room and he gave the notes to him. He said that the story was only about seven inches long but it ran around the world. John Allen was an 18-year-old student and was looking through the window of the student union when Whitman shot out the window. He ducked but was not quick enough. The bullet, or the glass from the window, had hit him in the forearm, severing an artery. Bill Halmer, one of the other students there at the time, placed a handkerchief on his arm to staunch the flow of blood, which likely helped to save John's life. Various businesses were trying to help, like the man earlier with the company that provided armoured vans to collect the injured. Morris Homan was a 30-year-old funeral director who was using his business's ambulance to transport the injured to hospital. He had, in fact, already transported mathematician Dr. Robert Boyer, who I told you about earlier, to Brackenridge and had returned to the area in his ambulance to help more casualties. He did that many times. It was Morris Homan who was the ambulance driver that had gone to Chef Door's Jewellers that I mentioned earlier. He'd been directed to the alley at the rear to pick up some people inside who had been injured. These were David Matson, Ronald Alk and Tom Herman, who I told you about before. 
Morris was shot in the right leg and managed to roll himself under a parked car and was dragged to safety by construction workers Bill Davis and Phil Ward, who were hiding behind the construction barricades where Claudia Rutt and Paul Sontag had been shot earlier. He was eventually transferred to Breckenridge in his own ambulance and received eight points of blood to save his life. F.L. Foster and Robert Freed were wounded in the crossfire between Whitman and those shooting from the ground to try to stop him. I couldn't find anything other than this, so I'm not sure what happened to them other than that they survived. In addition to people being shot by Whitman, there were also several people who were injured either by shrapnel, flying limestone, concrete or glass. Among these were Della and Marina Martinez, sisters who were visiting from Monterey, Mexico and were hit by shell fragments. Another was Dolores Ortega, a 30-year-old student and resident of the university. She was cut on the back of the head by broken glass. The last was C.A. Stewart, who was injured in the commotion. At the time of the shootings, the police department didn't have rapid response teams as this type of event wasn't something that happened very often. The notion of an active shooter, a perpetrator of a type of a mass murder, marked by rapidity, scale, randomness and often suicide didn't yet exist. Significant changes were made to the way the police would handle incidents such as this. In the wake of the Texas Tower shootings, special weapons and tactics, SWAT teams, began to be created across the country and they would come to be invaluable with the rise of mass shootings over the subsequent decades. Four minutes after Whitman began shooting, a history professor called the Austin Police Department. Billy Speed was one of the first officers to arrive on the scene and he was the officer who was killed by Whitman as he waited in the South Moor with a colleague behind a wall. It shows how proficient a shot Whitman was because the gap in the column was six inches and he got the shot through to hit speed. Officer Houston McCoy, 26, tried to find a way into the tower. A passing student offered to help, saying he had a rifle at home. Officer McCoy drove the student to his home to, to pick up the rifle and they then went back to the campus. Alan Crum, who I mentioned earlier, was a 40-year-old retired Air Force tail gunner. He was a manager at a bookstore on campus. He witnessed the 17-year-old newspaper boy Alec Hernandez being dragged along. He went outside to try to break up what he thought was a fight and found out instead that the boy had been shot. Crum heard more shots and rerouted traffic out of harm's way. He was then unable to make his way safely back into the bookstore he managed, so he made his way to the tower where he offered his help to the police. His help was accepted and he accompanied Department of Public Safety agent Dub Cowan and Austin police officer Jerry Day up to the lift. Cowan gave Crum a rifle. Around 12 noon, Officer Ramiro Ray Martinez was at home off duty when he heard about the shootings on the news. He called the police station and was told to go to the campus and direct traffic. When he got there, he found other officers already doing that, so he instead went to the tower. He assumed he would find a full team of officers there, but when he reached the 27th floor, he found only Crum, Cowan and Day. Though officers had been trying to reach the tower, their way was hampered by the fact that they were having to take cover often. A small group of officers, including Houston McCoy, began to make their way to the tower using underground maintenance tunnels. Officers and several civilians were providing suppressive fire from the ground with small weapons and hunting rifles. This forced Whitman to stay low and fire through storm drains at the bottom of the observation deck's wall. A police sharpshooter in a small plane was driven back by Whitman's continuous shooting, but continued to try to circle at a distance, trying to distract Whitman from looking for further targets. While the police were trying to get up to the observation deck to deal with the shooter, there were many civilians, including students on the ground with guns, who were also trying to get a shot at Whitman in an attempt to stop him. 
One such person was James Damon, who was a graduate student in comparative literature and is now a retired estate agent living in Austin. He said, My wife was six months pregnant and she was stuck on the fourth floor of the tower in the stacks. I looked around and didn't see any police, so I went home and got my gun. It was an M1 carbine, which I'd bought for $15 when I was discharged from the army. I went to the top of the new academic centre and tried to keep out of sight. That was the closest I could get. I only saw him once, long enough to take aim, but from time to time I would shoot over the ledge of the observation deck and try to hit him. Bill Halmer, an American history graduate student at the time of the shooting and now a historical crime writer living in Bernie, Texas, said, I remember thinking all we need is a bunch of idiots running around with rifles, but what they did turned out to be brilliant. Once he could no longer lean over the edge and fire, he was much more limited in what he could do. He had to shoot through those drain spouts or he had to pop up real fast and then dive down again. That's why he did most of his damage in the first 20 minutes. Martinez, Crum and Day searched the 27th floor where they found MJ Gabor, whose son had told him to try to find help. Whitman had killed his son and sister and he tried to get Martinez's gun away from him so he could go up and kill Whitman. But Day restrained him, accompanying him out of the building so that Martinez could move up the stairs to the observation deck. Crum insisted on covering him and Martinez deputised him. Martinez found the Gabor family under the stairwell that led to the reception area. Mike told him that Whitman was outside on the observation deck. Martinez was the first to reach the observation deck, the others following a few minutes later. Crum accidentally fired his rifle, drawing Whitman's attention to the south, looking for the sources of the rifle shot. Martinez and McCoy used his distraction to go onto the northeastern corner of the observation deck. Martinez jumped out and fired in Whitman's direction, missing with all of his revolver shots. McCoy took advantage of Martinez's shots and leaped out while he was firing. He saw Whitman's head over the light ballast and fired at the top of the ballast, hitting Whitman between the eyes several times, killing him instantly. McCoy fired on him again, hitting him in his left side. Martinez grabbed McCoy's shotgun, ran to Whitman's now dead body and shot him in the left arm. In the immediate aftermath, Martinez was almost shot himself by the shooters on the ground who mistook him for Whitman, not yet aware that the shooter was dead. Officers Martinez and McCoy were awarded medals of valour by the city of Austin for their actions on the day of the shooting. The observation deck was closed and the various bullet holes were repaired. The deck was reopened in 1968 but closed again in 1975 following four suicides. A steel lattice and other security features were installed and it was opened again in 1999 and all visitors are now screened by metal detectors. A memorial garden was dedicated to those who died or were affected and a monument listing the names of the victims was added in 2016 on the 50th anniversary of the shooting. A plaque was erected at an Austin police station with the names of various city employees and civilians who worked with the police. In 2014, Claire Wilson's stillborn baby son received a tombstone in Austin Memorial Park Cemetery after his grave was rediscovered by author Gary Laverne. Laverne was the author of a book, A Sniper in the Tower, released in 1997. Claire had been unaware of what exactly had happened to her son following his death, having only been told by relatives that her baby's body had been buried, but she didn't receive confirmation of that until almost 50 years later. Her baby had been buried in an unmarked plot. Laverne works at the University of Texas as the Director of Admissions. Claire said that she came across his book while she was travelling and sent an email to Laverne saying she'd been convinced he wouldn't have got the facts right because he hadn't spoken to her directly. Laverne had been trying to find Claire for years, but since she'd moved out of Texas years before, she'd spent most of her career working as a teacher. 
Claire did in fact approve of Laverne's account, particularly in the way he described her relationship with boyfriend Thomas Ekman, who died the day of the shooting. Claire and Laverne kept in touch and have developed a relationship over the years. Adorned with a single crucifix, the stone reads simply, Baby Boy Wilson, August 1st, 1966. So, after the death of Charles Whitman, officers discovered that he had visited several university physicians in the year leading up to his death. Various medications were prescribed to him and he had seen at least five doctors between the autumn and winter of 1965. He was prescribed Valium by one of the doctors that he'd visited and was advised that he should speak to one of the campus psychiatrists. He met with Morris Heatley, staff psychiatrist at the University of Texas Health Centre in March 1966. Whitman mentioned this visit in his suicide note, saying that he had met with a doctor and tried to tell him about his fears and that he felt overwhelming violent impulses. After one visit, he never saw the doctor again. Officers contacted Heatley and found that his notes said this massive muscular youth seemed to be oozing with hostility, that something seemed to be happening to him and that he didn't seem to be himself. He readily admits having overwhelming periods of hostility with a very minimum of provocation. Repeated enquiries attempting to analyse his exact experiences were not too successful with the exception of his vivid reference to thinking about going up to the tower with a deer rifle and start shooting people. It is inconceivable that he'd mentioned this to a psychiatrist who it appears did nothing about it. It turned out that though Dr Heatley graduated from medical school, he was not board certified to practice psychiatry. At the time, it wasn't required for certification if you wanted to practice psychiatry in Texas. As long as you were a licensed physician, you could do so. It doesn't inspire confidence in Dr. Heatley's capabilities, especially when you take into account the following description of sessions that former University of Texas student Bill Halmer had with his wife. My visit consisted mainly of listening to him talk on the telephone with the driller who was putting in a water well on his ranch, after which he gave me a prescription for Librium. My wife came back from her visit crying and said that after pretty much bearing a soul, his advice to her was to grow up. It isn't known whether Dr Heatley's session with Bill Halmer was typical or not, but it is known that he did have allegations of cronyism pointed at him. His brother was the State Senate Appropriations Committee chairman and in 1964, auditors discovered that he'd been paid 40 to $50 more per hour than other psychiatric consultants for his work for the Texas Department of Corrections and the Texas Youth Commission. These allegations were dismissed along with those of misconduct in the Whitman case. At the time, mental health practitioners agreed that there was nothing he could have done to prevent the shootings as a comparison was made to other patients who had expressed similar thoughts to their psychiatrists and hadn't done anything about it. Despite there being no sanctions for Dr Heatley, it is worth noting that he wouldn't be hired today by the Counselling and Mental Health Centre as each of the current doctors hold a board certification in psychiatry. So, Whitman's autopsy. On the 2nd of August, the day after the shootings, an autopsy was carried out on Whitman's body by Coleman de Chenar, who was a neuropathologist at Austin State Hospital. During the autopsy, a pecan-sized brain tumour was found, but he concluded that it wouldn't have had any effect on Whitman's actions. A task force was commissioned by John Connolly, the Texas governor, to examine the outcome of the autopsy related to Whitman's actions and motives. The commission included experts from neurosurgery, psychiatry, pathology and psychology. It's ironic that Dr Morris Heatley was included in these experts. Following a three-hour hearing on the 5th of August, the commission decided that the findings of the autopsy had been in error. 
The psychiatrists on the committee found that the condition of the tumour that Shannara had found meant that the tumour could conceivably have contributed to Whitman's inability to control his emotions and actions. But the neuropathologist concluded that the application of existing knowledge of organic brain function does not enable us to explain the actions of Whitman on August 1st. Forensic investigators have since theorised that the tumour pressed against Whitman's amygdala, a part of the brain related to anxiety and fight-or-flight response. A joint Catholic funeral service for Whitman and his mother was held in Lake Worth, Florida on August 5th, 1966. They were buried in Florida's Hillcrest Memorial Park. Since he was a military veteran, Whitman was buried with military honours. His casket was draped with the American flag. Okay, that was a long episode and I realised that it is quite a grim one, but I thought it was an important one to discuss considering the subject matter. In the years since this shooting incident happened, there have sadly been too many mass shootings in the United States. These have taken place in schools, Columbine, Colorado in 1999 and Sandy Hook, Connecticut in 2012, for example, movie theatres, Aurora, Illinois in 2012, and even in the open air during a concert, the Las Vegas Strip in 2017. I don't know what the answer to this is, as it's such a polarising subject, but something must surely be done to stop these incidents from occurring. When so many of a country's citizens and its children are dying needlessly in attacks such as these, something has to change, surely. One thing that became clear as I was researching this case was that many people actually put others' welfare before their own as they put themselves in danger in order to try to help those who had been injured. This has been something that's happened again and again following events of this kind. We've all read about teachers who have tried to protect the children in their care during attacks at schools. Though the perpetrators of these wicked acts are the ones that get most of the headlines, it is nice to realise that there are people out there that would put themselves into danger in order to help one of their fellow human beings. Mm, Yeah, I agree. I mean, you always find that when there's some kind of a tragedy Mm. that people step forward and help out. They do. I think these kind of things do sort of... Bring people together. They do, yeah. Yeah, definitely. So any comments or questions on that? quite long ones there um yeah i've got a few i mean the gun laws Mm. obviously i'm not american i don't live there so Mm. it's hard to comment to a certain degree but i mean i I do think they need to look at their gun laws didn't you tell me recently that they were gonna change something so they don't have to wait they can just go in and pick up a gun no i think i did say that but and again this was in texas what what was that there was there was something that I read and they were I think what it was it was actually again in Texas they were going to allow people to carry guns without permits oh so therefore I I mean I, I don't know what effect obviously I'm not American same as you as you say so it is hard to comment but I mean that just sounds bonkers to me that y- you could have a gun without actually having a permit to carry one so you can literally just go and buy one, like, I'm, I'm like get- in a supermarket. I'm guessing that's the case. I mean, that, the fact that you can go into Walmart, I've heard you can just buy a gun. Yeah, but it's, you, you can't just buy a gun and walk off with it, can you? Don't they have to... I, th- I think there's like a waiting period. Mm. I don't know if that's still the case now, but I think you have to wait, is it a, a month or something like know. that? And you're supposed to have a licence, I think, for yeah. it, but apparently something is going through Congress at the moment saying that they can carry a gun without a permit in texas why would you bring that in what benefit is that gonna no clue whatsoever i don't understand i mean you think if you need a gun for a specific purpose 
you'd know there's that process you go through. Mm. So yeah, that's just inviting any one that, you know, just suddenly thinks, oh, I'm going to do something and I, I need a gun yeah. to just go and pick what, one up. Yeah. Hmm. It is hard for us to comment on it because we don't live with that. I mean, we have plenty of knife crime over here. Yeah, we do. We do. I mean, we've gone through that in one of our previous episodes, but it, it it's hard to see these things happening on the news and not comment because, I mean, when you've got children being killed in schools where they're supposed to be safe, it's hard not to have an opinion over that. Yeah. And with knife crime, I mean, you could go and pick up a kitchen knife. Mm. So that's a little bit different. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's ways you can get guns without having to go through the proper means anyway, mm. if you're that way inclined. But yeah, I mean, I just think that the laws, how could you bring in a law for knife crime when we use knives every day? We you do. know, mm. it, it's yeah. hard, isn't it? It is. But yeah, yeah, I mean, when you're not in that situation. Yeah. As well, when you were talking about his early life, again, like we said on a past one, and he was from an abusive family, mm. that always seems to keep coming up does, as a, you know, could potentially be a reason for why they behave that mm. way. The, what actually happened to his brother? Because you said his one brother moved with his mom to look after her. Where was she then when he killed her? No, he moved to Austin. Yeah, to look so after he, his mother. You well, said. to be there so that he could help Charles look after her. He wasn't oh. living with her. No, oh, okay. she, she lived in an apartment on her own. Yeah, because you didn't obviously mention him after. I just oh, wondered what no. had happened to him. No, I'm not too sure what happened to him and the father, mm. to be honest. And again, he kind of reminded me of that Ronnie DeFeo because he was on amphetamines. Mm. So that could have been well, it kind of... a reason because, I mean, he was taking amphetamines and he went off and just shot all his family. I'm guessing it's chemical. It's chemical, like a psychosis it? type of thing, mm, yeah. maybe. But yeah, I mean, that you do sort of have to ask yourself, is there some sort of correlation between all these things? The bad childhood, there's the amphetamine abuse. Obviously, he had a tumour, which yeah, would have had Yeah, but if that was only small, I mean, that might have triggered that event. Mm. But, I mean, you said even earlier in his life, there were signs. Yeah. From yeah. things he used to say and that. Well, he wouldn't have had the tumour back then. No, I mean, the the fact that he had quite a morbid sense of humour mm. from what people that he went to school with used to say. So, yeah. yeah. I found a few other instances of things where he'd said things a bit. Yeah, so he obviously was that way inclined, maybe. Yeah. I don't get why he felt like he had to kill his mother and his wife to save them the heartache you know people would feel sorry for them mm, you'd was, assume i don't know i'm guessing it was part of whatever was going through his mind mm. and that was whether it was a psychosis whether it was it just seems so organized mm. if he was on drugs and or having some kind of a mental breakdown you know the way he planned it all that yeah. the letters were really well written it just seems really strange yeah I mean, I think I need to read this book that this Gary Laverne did. I read some of it, mm. but not in any great detail. I, I kind of focused on the, the, victims. the victims. Yeah, because it's about them at the end of the day. They're the ones that were that were killed or injured. And I mean, some of them had life-changing injuries. So how many people did he actually kill and how many survived? 
I can tell you that. Just bear with me. Did you actually say that in it and I just totally no, missed I do, it? I, I didn't actually count it up or anything, but I do have that information. I mean, I bet all the people that they didn't help him but let him through and didn't think anything of it, didn't do proper checks, I bet they felt guilty, like the security and... Probably. I mean, that was the thing that I noticed near the start. It, you know, the lift wasn't working. Yeah, so that so helpful security guard mm. hadn't... And the one just let him in yeah. on the campus yeah. in the first place yeah. as well. And... <clears throat> I'm just trying to find it. And I wonder why he didn't kill those first two people on the observation deck. Yet yep. he killed the others. Again, it's you don't I mean, know what he was actually going just through his... said hello to him, and he had his guns in his hand, and them as well. It's it's a weird thing when I guess, you know, you're going about your normal day, and then even when you see something out of the ordinary in your head, you come up with a rational reason as to why yeah. why that's happening. Like the guy that saw them people lying on the floor and thought it was some drama group, and yeah. they thought in the observation tower that he was up there to shoot pigeons or some, was it birds or yeah, something? Yeah, pigeons. Yeah, that's what they thought it was. But I'm guessing part of that is because they'd never seen anything like this before. Yeah, you would think like that, I guess, wouldn't you? I mean, I'd like to think if I saw a guy with two guns, I wouldn't have just said hello to him. I'd have, when I got out to safety, I would have reported it. But you just don't know. It's one of them where afterwards you think, I wish I'd done that. But I just assumed, like that woman, he was up there to, you know, call some birds. Well, this is the thing. I mean, I don't know what living in Texas is like. Do you see people just carrying guns? I don't know. I mean, maybe that's... But, but I mean, these people... were not small guns. That's the no. thing. These were like rifles and they were... I mean, he, he had a lot of equipment with him. I mean, he had them on like a trolley. So... But yeah, so that might look less suspicious. The fact that he's got all this set up. Maybe. If you're trying to be inconspicuous, you wouldn't be strolling around with a big setup like that, no, would you? I think because he'd said, hadn't he, that he was like a delivery man or something. But the fact that he had a gun in front of those two. Yeah, but people do do that. You know, shooting the boring shopping centre. There's actually people that do go in. If pigeons get in there, because if they're flying around the stores, they can cause a lot of damage. Oh, so they oh, do okay. They do, do that. I would hope somebody would have said something. Well, they, they well, obviously they didn't. didn't. No. Okay, I've got the information. Yeah, so he killed 16 and injured 31. Oh, okay. That's the thing as well. I was thinking when you were going through it, the whole process. I mean, if he was trained in the military, like Mm. a sniper, he weren't the best shot, was he? I mean, which is good because obviously a lot more people could have died. Bear in mind, it was like 98 minutes, I think. In 98 minutes, he killed and injured 31, so... 47 people but if he was a good sniper he would have killed all of them people which again well, I, I want to say i'm glad yeah. he wasn't yeah but if that was what he was trained in he did have a lot of misses and shots that weren't really on target didn't they think from what i was reading i don't know how true this is but apparently when you're a sniper what you do is you shoot and if they don't move you move on so i think with a lot of them playing dead i think he thought they were dead Uh, no i just meant like you know usually they'd go straight for the head for the head yeah that's what i mean i don't know no obviously i'll probably watch way too many films and (laughs) no but this was the thing with that claire wilson i mean she said afterwards 
because I've read quite a lot of interviews with a lot of the people, the survivors and the people that... that That's the one with the baby? Yeah. There's obviously a reason why he went for her stomach. He shot her in the stomach. If she's eight months pregnant, he can see she's pregnant. So that was what he aimed for. That's what I was meaning, what he was coming to is, all the people that he didn't kill, did he not plan on killing? Was that his, you know, do you think he, he wanted to leave people? Or went for certain parts of their bodies where they'd still live, but... Yeah, possibly, because, I mean, he was a good shot, because if you consider that he got that one person within a six-inch gap... Yeah, that's what I I meant. I wonder if... No, I see what you mean. That's what I meant. Yeah, no, I get you, yeah. It could be. It could be that he he killed who he wanted to kill. Mm, Yeah. 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 I I mean, it's just a horrible case. Yeah. I mean, that woman with the baby, that was... Yeah. And the fact afterwards, she never knew what had happened to him. If she hadn't have come across that book... Yeah. ...and met that author, she would never have known what had happened to her son. 50 years later, she'd never known where he was buried. No. But I can't believe that her family never told her. Because the family had obviously had him buried. That's just really wrong to me. Mm. Poor girl. Strange. Yeah. But then, as you said before, that at the time, she was obviously unmarried, pregnant. It was frowned upon. Mm, yeah. You don't know how her family saw it, do you? No, you the don't. The pregnancy part. No, I've, I've not heard anything about how the family was sort of behaving. I've, as I say, I've read some interviews, but it's more about like the case, about what happened rather than like what her life was like. Yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, that could be. They might have not agreed with it. and Maybe, yeah. Yeah. And yeah, that psychiatrist, that's the only other oh, thing. Was... I mean, he could have potentially have, you know, that might not have happened. No, but the fact that he was on the border review that we're reviewing the case mm. afterwards, that's just absolutely boggles the mind. Yeah. yeah. Now, a lot of these cases, there's always something in it, whether it be something to do with the investigation yeah. or the sentencing or... Yeah. Whatever, you know, there's always something that you sort of think, how the hell did, that's our dog snoring, by the way, if you can hear a weird noise. Um, <laughs> you do sort of think, how was that even a thing? There's usually always something, isn't yeah, there? It's like a hindsight thing, isn't it? It's mm. like, why Why did you do nothing? Yeah. And unfortunately, that seems to be a recurring thing. There's like quite a few of our cases that we've covered. But yeah, that's what I meant, yeah. yeah. It's like, and and things that, not even, that we haven't even covered, but... Mm. When you see, you watch documentaries, you hear about things in the news, you know, you just think, how did that come about? How did it slip through the crack? Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So, any other comments? No, I think that, that's it, yeah. Okay. So, okay then. Thanks, everybody, for listening. I know this has been a long one. We're well over an hour here, but I hope you enjoyed listening to us. I know, as I say, it's not a nice case, but if you have any ideas for any cases you'd like us to cover... Let us know on our social media. We'll be back next week with another episode, which is going to be led by Sarah. Mm-hmm. Um, so there we go. And take care, everybody. Stay safe. Have a good week. Yep. And we'll see you next week. We will. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Bye.